Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the cool things that will be possible in a free future. If you love cinema, you probably saw 2018's blockbuster hit Black Panther, which was set in a fictional African land called Wakanda. Now, the people of Wakanda, they enjoy futuristic tech that is light years beyond anything outside of Africa. The movie was a global hit, and it popularized a literary genre called Afrofuturism that typically features works by African-American authors interested in how technological progress in the future could allow people who are subjugated, oppressed, and colonized to throw off their shackles. And while Afrofuturism might at times feel like escapist fantasy from the dreary racism that is all too real today, it's vitally important because science fiction is a tool of the imagination. And it's the imagination where progress and innovation begin. Think back to our episode about the invention of cryptocurrency. Where decades before alternative currency was invented, it was first imagined by a small group of radicals, anarchists, and techno-libertarians. It was a crazy and outlandish idea, until quite suddenly it wasn't. The stories we tell about possible futures can draw things into existence. That is the power of the imagination. That is the power of science fiction. And in this episode, we're going to explore a particular set of science fictions, both from Africa and from African Americans, and how those imaginings might go from science fiction to science fact, and do so much sooner than you might realize. Wakanda might be fiction today, but it may not be for much longer. That's because right now, as you listen to this, there are innovations being tested in Africa that surpass anything we're doing in the United States. We'll talk to a representative later from Zipline, a medical supply delivery drone startup based in Rwanda. But before that, let's talk a bit more about Afrofuturism and what it suggests about the future of innovation in Africa. I'm here with Dr. Mora Dewan Adejanmobi, a professor of African and African American studies at the University of California, Davis. Professor, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Now, in, in layman's terms, very basically, what is Afrofuturism and why did it particularly gain steam in the 1990s? Okay, um, the term Afrofuturism was coined by um, a cultural theorist, an African American cultural theorist named Mark Derry, and um, it tries to bring together um, African diasporic populations, um, technology, and the future. And some people have said that um, Afro, um, that the authors who, and filmmakers who, who refer to Afrofuturism use uh, science fiction to explore the relation of science, society, and race, and to stake claims for people of African descent in a future um, global imaginary. So it's, it's, I guess, broadly speaking, it's part of the African diaspora, not just African, not just African-American. It's people of African descent around the globe. Is that correct? That is correct. And I will take this opportunity to say that in terms of my own interests, I am interested specifically in African science fiction more so than Afrofuturism, though there are um, interesting overlaps and there are interesting conversations and debates and controversies surrounding who gets to be described as participating in Afrofuturism whose work should be considered Afrofuturist and whose work should not. 
to put that in in general terms, uh, Afrofuturism, um, at least as I was reading Mark Derry's essay, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Black to the Future, it, it, it really is formed around uh, a kind of a, a group of mostly African-American science fiction and futurist writers like Octavia Butler um, and others. And you're talking – so there's Afrofuturism, which is has often been written by African-American authors at least back you know, several decades ago, and then African science fiction. But now those, those two kind of fields of literature are merging in some ways. Well, there are parts of them that are merging and there are parts of them that are drifting away. Um, and one of the things that's interesting, of course, is that in African science fiction – some of the leading writers in recent time are writers whose parents are African, but they were born in the United States or in the United Kingdom. But because their parents are African, they certainly have a very direct connection to the African continent. Um, their parents have taken them there uh, on holidays. They may have lived there for short periods of time. They visit very regularly. So they have a, a a much closer connection to specific areas in the on the African continent than might um, an African American writer who doesn't have that kind of um, immediate and close connection to the African continent. And so those writers have been at pains to separate themselves in various ways. With the most prominent being Nnedi Okorafor, a well-known um, author. Um, of science fiction and fantasy novels, um, author of Who Fears Death, um, Akata Warrior, Book of Phoenix, Lagoon, and so many others. And um, most recently, uh, in addition to having complained about um, Afrofuturism and and having complained that um, African authors and African-based writers are not sufficiently uh, represented in that term, has begun to describe herself as an African futurist, uh, as one word. So she is putting forward that what um, she's about now is what she calls African futurism. And here is how she defines African futurism. She says it's similar to Afrofuturism in the way that blacks on the continent and in the black diaspora are all connected by blood, spirit, history in the future. The difference is that African futurism is specifically and more directly rooted in African culture, history, mythology, and point of view, as it then branches into the black diaspora. And she says um, African futurism, as she understands it, and how she now wants to define herself, is very Africa-centered. So that the future that is being imagined um, plays out in on the African continent and in very specific African places, unlike the Wakanda of Black Panther. It's a very specific and very recognizable African places. And she gives an example to um, to uh, show the to to highlight the potential differences between Afrofuturism and African futurism. And the example that she gives, she says um, from from um, the Black Panther, she says in um, Black Panther, which is very Afrofuturist, Wakanda builds its first outpost in Oakland, California, USA. Because that's where that's where the movie starts, right? And she says in African futurism, Wakanda would build its first outpost in a neighboring African country. That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, that's. I, mean, it, I, I suppose it makes sense that uh, for African American Afrofuturist uh, Afro uh, Afrofuturism writers, um, you know, 
especially if they if they didn't grow up with that kind of connection that you're talking about, you know, traveling back and forth between the continents, um, frequently visiting and having relations, direct relations back on back back in Africa, it would. I mean, in a sense, Wakanda is as as real or as unreal as any actual African nation to them in their lived experience, right? Like the difference between writing about Lagos or, or, you know, some other major city or place in Africa. Well, it, in a sense that is, um, an unattainable distant object in, in a way. So that's actually a really, that's a very interesting observation. Um, what then I'm actually interested about this question, which is so here in here in the United States, um, Black Panther landed like a 600 pound stone and um, was a real kind of cultural phenomenon for for a, a moment in in 2018 um, among African-American audiences and, and broader audiences as well, of course. How was that? I, mean, I don't know at all. I don't even know how the movie was received in Africa among African film-going audiences, how the comic books, if they were even read at all. What has the African experience of that cultural moment been like? I think um, in on the African continent as well, there was a lot of excitement with Black Panther, and it was well-received. It was a popular movie. Um, it did what African science fiction writers and the few who are trying their hand at, you know, making it something that might be called an African science film wanted to do, which is um, project a future future world where Africans would be at the center of it, mm-hmm. where black people would be at the center of it. And um, yeah, so so it, it, it did that. And and. For that reason, it was well-received. It was popular. Um, And the fact that there were many cultural elements in Black Panther that were adopted, that were um, uh, um, from very specific African cultures, you know, with people speaking, um, some of the characters speaking um, the Koza language of South Africa, for example, Mm -hmm. um, and so on and so forth, the clothing from different parts of Africa, the the fact that that was incorporated into it also made it recognizable and, and not just recognizable but something that people wanted to celebrate to see in a in a blockbuster american movie to see an acknowledgement of, of any element of the african landscape the african reality and the african experience so it was well received in that sense for those writers who actually do african science fiction as I said, their main thing is um, now that we have Black Panther, can we all now turn to and begin to really engage with um, narratives of the future that are centered on the African continent? I confess I'm not well read in either Afrofuturism or African science fiction. So I asked Dr. Adejimobi if she could describe several representative examples. And I'll give an example of... Um, the Kenyan filmmaker Wanuri Kahu, who made a short, which won a couple of awards, titled Pumzi, and it it's usually um, available for free on the internet. So I, I, did, I didn't check just before we started speaking to see if it's still available, um, but it, it's it's a short. And in Pumzi, you have um, a future um, Kenya in the future after what are called the uh, water wars. And 
only a fraction of humanity has survived. And they live in this um, place where they uh, they live in this kind of um, uh, in, in this in this uh, special settlement. And they cannot come out of the building because the the rest of the earth has been transformed um, into an into a nuclear wasteland and an individual scientist who lives within that community receives an unmarked package of soil and with a message that she can plant, she can take it out and she can plant something and it will grow. And she violates the orders of the community to venture beyond the walls of this uh, special um, sealed compartment where they all are. And she's able to, um, you know, plant, you know, um, uh, take this piece of soil out and, and plant um, something and um, but she gives her life in doing that. So it's just a post-apocalyptic narrative. I mean, there's the, the water wars reminds me of like a Mad Max, Mad Max riffs on that idea um, with water scarcity in the post-apocalyptic setting or uh, children of men. I mean, in that case, it's, you know, uh, someone who's pregnant is very rare in this case. I mean, so it's a fertility, a story about fertility in an infertile, sterile wasteland. That's that's really interesting. But I guess here what makes it um, African science fiction is that it's set in Africa very distinctly, right? It's set very distinctly in Africa. And the source of the apocalypse is not the fact that it's in Africa. Mm. Because Africa itself is often presented as this dystopian place by definition. And you have these post-apocalyptic fictions which um, explore the idea of um, a dystopian reality, an apocalyptic world, but it has nothing to do with Africa. It, it has something to do with technology and what has happened to technology in how humans have either used or abused technology or how humans have used or abused their own environment. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's another short story, um, a novella by a Nigerian um, called Ife Okogu, that's his name, and his novella is titled Proposition 23, and the story is set in the 22nd century, and the earth is dying, and the plot unfolds in a snow-covered Lagos. It's freezing because the climate has been completely messed up, and the world's fossil fuels have been depleted, and nuclear conflict has triggered an everlasting winter. And so only a few people survive, and the few people who survive um, need to be connected to uh, something that the government has created. They need to be plugged into an electro-neurological device that's implanted in the human body. And in order to be, to, to be, uh, uh, to be plugged in, you have to be an obedient citizen. And if you are a disobedient citizen, you're not plugged in. And the people who are not plugged in are called the, um, they're called uh, the undead. They, they, <laughs> they, they are unlinked from every interface and from every device and, and from the system of credit that operates is in the snow-covered Lagos. And they have to fend for themselves. Uh, and the undead in the end attempt a revolution, uh, but many of them are tortured and killed. So that's, again, some interesting kind of um, narrative and uh, it's it's again a recognizable post-apocalyptic narrative where race doesn't really fa you know factor in it is technology it is politics it is climate change mm. 
is that a difference? I mean, I mean, obviously we're speaking in generalities here, so I'm, I'm sure there's always exceptions. But is that a difference between you know African American authored Afrofuturism and African science fiction? The, the the African science fiction is less interested in focusing on on race, um, and African American science fiction is in some ways you know grappling still with the you know legacy of of exclusion and racism and, and slavery and the like. Um, the answer is yes and no. There's a lot of African science fiction that doesn't deal with race because the authors of um, science fiction, wherever they are, are speaking to their own reality. Mm-hmm. So there is a part of Africa where race is a big question. Yeah. South Africa. <laughs> yeah. And the, uh, um, the fictions that come out of South Africa in different ways often engage with the question of race. Starting with that big um, Hollywood blockbuster that's well known, District Nine, um, and there are other narratives by um, South African uh, by by South African science fiction writers that deal uh, with race in interesting ways. Um, it's race is not necessarily central. They are projecting a future, into, you know, a future mm-hmm. world. But in that future world, the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and the dividing line often mimics what we know about racial relations in the contemporary time. I mentioned Mark Derry earlier as the scholar who coined the term Afrofuturism, but there's a great quote from his essay on this point. African Americans, in a very real sense, are the descendants of alien abductees. Isn't that fascinating? It seems so obvious once you think about it. How else would you describe the experience of being bodily carried away by an oddly colored people that had traveled vast distances just to capture you? The Middle Passage or the transatlantic slave trade was alien abduction on a massive scale, and those left behind could only wonder what had happened to their abducted loved ones. Of course, that would leave a mark in the African imaginary that would later be explored through science fiction. But the idea is even broader than that. It's not just a matter of abductees, but of alien invasion and occupation. Back to Dr. Adigen Moby. Um, so I, I want to, to clarify, you know, clearly the um, alien abduction theme speaks very much to, um, it speaks very much to the transatlantic slavery and that experience. But alien encounters in general speak to colonialism. Mm. Yeah. And that's been, you know, so many uh, authors are using that, you know, that uh, very familiar alien abduction, um, alien encounters theme to explore um, future colonialisms or to revisit past colonialism. I'm going to come back to, because to, I know I haven't yet fully answered your question. I'm going to return to that in a moment, but I just wanted to uh, make that clear. Um, one example would be um, a short story by the Zimbabwean author, Tendai Huchu, and Zimbabwe, formerly Rhodesia, was not connected to the Atlantic slave trade. So he uses this short story that he, he titles The Sale to explore a kind of maybe present, contemporary, and future colonialism. And in the story, which is set in Zimbabwe, um, Zimbabwe is now being governed by a techno-scientific empire, um, a joint U.S.-China corporation, um, and which 
is um, taking over all the land in Zimbabwe piece by piece. And the this techno scientific empire is called Corp Gov, and it owns many countries in Africa. It's <laughs> great. And, and and the protagonist um, who is um, a, a Zimbabwean, he lives in Harare, which is now Zimbabwe's capital city, city, and has been renamed Ha City. And all the men in um, in in Zimbabwe are now forced to take testosterone suppressants, and they are not allowed to have children. Um, because the land is to be used by this this new um, corporation that has taken over. And in the short st- story, um, the, this uh, central character applies to the uh, to the to the corporation to allow him um, to to become a parent. But he he receives a letter denying his application for parenthood, hmm. and um, he is unable to procreate at the same time as, as all of the land in Zimbabwe is being taken over by this corporation. So this is kind of like a future kind of colonialism, not the past colonialism, but there's also so, uh, a kind of exploration of what happens to technology, the ways in which technology is advancing and how the advancements of technology will or will not benefit um, Africans, um, how they will be cut off or they will not be cut off from the new technologies that are being developed around the world. There's this real tension in African science fiction between a more optimistic view of technology's liberatory potential and the pessimistic concern about how that same tech could be used to recolonize or otherwise marginalize Africa once again. It's a tension that's not unique to African science fiction. Think, say, of the the contrast between an episode of Black Mirror and the three-body problem. But given negative African encounters with advanced technology during the early modern period, you'd expect that tension to be particularly trenchant. I asked Dr. Adejimobi to provide us with some examples of both impulses. Um, So I think one person who tends to have a more um, optimistic view actually is Nnedi Okorafor, who's Nigerian-American. Her parents are Nigerian, but she was born and grew up in the United States, but she goes back and forth. And so in her works, she does portray um, technological innovation, uh, on the African continent, enabling people in Africa to be able to um, free themselves from uh, whatever kind of local um, oppression is taking place at a certain point in time. You know, one can think of um, her novel um, Lagoon as an example. Uh, one can think of um, uh, The Book of Phoenix, um, the Binti trilogy, Who Fares Death, and in those instances, we have technological innovation occurring either entirely on the African continent or partly on the African co- continent and being used for what you might describe as revolutionary purposes, um, for political purposes, to free people who are in some way deprived. So um, Nedio Korafo's works go in that, um, in, in that direction. For a more pessimistic view, you can think of... Um, a big novel by the Ghanaian writer Kojo Lane titled Big Bishop Roko and the Altar um, Gangsters. And in that novel, um, scientists in the global north have initiated a process of genetic muta- mutation. And the end result of that will be a fusion of human and machine that is more machine than human. 
And citizens from the poorer countries are excluded from this exercise in social engineering. And so they are reduced to being merely human, while citizens in the wealthier countries of the world, the most powerful countries of the world, will become cyborgs of a kind, and they will rule the world. And um, so the, the main character in this novel realizes that this is what is happening and that Africans are going to be excluded. And so he hacks into the network that is responsible for the, this um, mutation in the hopes of interrupting this, this technological process of transforming humans into cyborgs because he realizes that his own part of the world is not going to benefit from this. And therefore, they will, they will be more vulnerable to exploitation, to a future kind of colonialism, uh, because they, they remain human while the rest of the world is no longer just human anymore. I also asked Dr. Adjimobi about whether recent African technological advances had imparted a sense of hopefulness. After all, Africa's cellular network is in some ways more advanced than America's, and the majority of African cell phone users use their devices for banking, payments, and other services that are only slowly being adopted in much of the developed world. Africa is leapfrogging the U.S. in various technologies. But Dr. Adjimobi had a different and I think more interesting take. Well... There, um, I, I'm afraid I'm going to be, uh, I'm, I'm going to disappoint <laughs> somewhat because I, I think the stories uh, thus far don't speak a lot to hopefulness. The science fiction don't speak, uh, the science, um, African science fiction narratives don't often speak to hopefulness in a clear cut way, uh, though they do speak to technology. And you are right. Um, there's a lot of technological innovation going on. And technology is changing, the way people interact with technology is changing culture, um, with the cell phones, um, you know, I mean, things like, and and you're right again, the things that happened on the African continent before they happened in the United States, you paying with your cell phones Mm -hmm, started, mm -hmm. you you know, in a number of African countries way before it began um, in in the United States. Uh, But because people are, you know, interacting with technology in new ways, whether it's drones, whether it's um, cell phones, whether it's broken down, um, you know, Africa is a major site for electronic waste, a massive site for the dumping of electronic waste. Um, Those things are causing a new generation of, you know, young people to, to write about technology. To think about technology. Um, one person who has uh, done some reflection about this is a Ghanaian whose name is Jonathan Doche. And he says, in one of the things that he's written on his own website, he has a website, I think it's Afro Cyberpunk. And he said, Africa itself is science fiction. You know, not the science fiction of your grandfather or the foundation of your Asimov. No, Africa lent herself to the dystopian gloom of failed states, the iron rule of corruption, cartels snaking cold fingers into the upper echelons of government and the high tech gangs of disillusioned youth. Um, And so he goes on and he speaks about, for example, the people who engage in um, who engage in in cyber fraud. And. Ghana, Nigeria are major locations for international, for global cyber fraud. Nigerian prince. Uh, Ni- Niger- Nigerian prince. Um, and 
many of these people, young people who engage in the cyber fraud, um, some of them are graduates who couldn't find a job. Some of them never went to university, but they know everything about working, you know, um, a fourth hand computer Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Mm -hmm. connected to the Internet. Now, they, they they bring together their tech savvy and their ability to resurrect every dead kind of technological device, no matter how dead it is, with um, some of the traditional and indigenous spiritual beliefs. They may have somebody, you, you know, they may consult with um, some kind of figure who uh, who says an individual who says that they are able to call the spirits to bless their work before they then sit in front of computers all night, you know, and, and these yeah. guys who do this, they sit in front of computers all night because um, when it's night in Nigeria, then it's daytime in the United States and ah. they're targeting, they're targeting victims in the United States mm-hmm. and they're working on like three or four computers at the same time, each individual carrying on several conversations with different people and using different identities at the same time. So uh, there is this there is this engagement with technology. And um, another scholar, um, Brian Larkin, who works at um, he's at um, Columbia University, has said that in trying to figure out how Africans are interacting with technology today, uh, we need to think not only of when technology is working as it should, but when technology fails, which it often does. You know, the power goes out. Um, the computer just shuts down because it hasn't been updated. Uh, various things that are supposed to happen don't happen when they're supposed to happen. And people at the same time are still interacting. They, they have this interface with technology. And all of this is feeding into the kinds of stories that people are are writing. And, and I think it's because people are much more... have a greater daily experience of the failure of technology that they, uh, there's much more skepticism about what the new technologies will bring in the science fiction narratives. Mm, interesting. Well, that, I mean, it's a deeply, I mean, the, the way you framed our, our, you know, our, our Nigerian prince, you know, email scammers, um, uh, that very cyberpunk. I mean, in a sense, they're, they're hacking uh, consumers in another country. I mean that. I mean, I can see why that would appeal to you know our Ghanaian author specializing in, in cyberpunk stories because that's very punk. <laughs> right, right, right. They, they, uh, you know, they, they, they're hacking into into systems um, 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 elsewhere in the world, and um, they, they also understand that they themselves, because you're familiar with us uh, with the Nigerian prince kind of narrative, they understand that they themselves are positioned in a certain way globally, so that the individuals who are um, participating in this uh, fraud, it's called um, the 419 in, um, in Nigeria, going by the criminal code, who participate in it, even if they're not completely down and out, they know how to write a story that says I'm completely down and out. I've got nothing. You know, my parents were killed in a civil war. They know all the tropes that are used to represent Africa in the global imaginary. And they draw on all of them. Hmm. That's cool. You know, yeah. I was, I, you know, I, I, I was, I was, you know, my parents were murdered. My mother was raped. Uh, my father had HIV. Uh, every 
hard knock story they can come up with, they are able to draw on all that to create fictional personas for themselves that they deploy in trying to um, lure unsuspecting victims into their net. I love this reframing of computer scammers as a community of cyberpunk hackers who, despite often having a lack of formal training, make up for it with hustle and wit. There they sit, surrounded by the technological detritus of the West, scraping for a living by whatever means they can find. Now that's really punk. But the future of African technological innovation isn't reliant on Nigerian print scams and hacked together systems. There are startups in Africa doing fascinating work. One such company is Zipline, a flying drone delivery service for life-saving medical supplies that is years in advance of anything being done in the United States. So I asked Justin Hamilton, the head of global communications and public affairs at Zipline, to explain what the company's up to. Welcome to the show, Justin. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So in very basic terms, what does Zipline do? So Zipline is the uh, world's first uh, and largest drone delivery operation. We make uh, instant deliveries of critical and life-saving products uh, to people in need. Uh, we began in uh, October of 2016 in Rwanda delivering blood to transfusion clinics uh, in hospitals in the western part of the country. Uh, we've since expanded uh, to establish a second base, bringing all 11 million citizens in Rwanda within a 30-minute flight of uh, now over 100 different life-saving and critical uh, medicines and medical products, vaccines, uh, uh, rabies, antivenin, uh, you name it. Um, since then, we expanded to Ghana, uh, where we established uh, four uh, distribution centers. Each one of these distribution centers, so pictured, it's a, a combination uh, medical fulfillment warehouse and drone airport. Uh, so it's as if somebody merged, you know, Boeing with UPS, a aerospace company, and a fulfillment and logistics business. Um, and e each one of these things can serve uh, about uh, an area of around 8,000 square miles. So many, many millions of people, uh, we can reach many millions of people from one distribution center. So walk us through a delivery point to point. We have a, let's say a rural clinic, they need a, a rare blood type they don't have in stock. What do they do to get in contact with Zipline? So a doctor would send us uh, a message over text or WhatsApp, uh, which is very commonly used uh, around the world, uh, or give us a call. And make make a request. Our fulfillment operators would, uh, you know, take whatever blood or medical product was being ordered from our warehouse, load it to the, uh, give it to the flight operators who'd load it up in a box with a parachute, uh, put the box onto the drone. The drone would be placed on the launcher. We'd go through the pre-flight process, much of which has been automated thanks to technologies like computer vision and things like that. We'd launch that plane uh, into the sky. It's really sort of slingshotted. So it achieves speed very quickly. It goes from zero to 60 in about uh, a fraction of a second. Uh, and it flies a pre-programmed, you know, it flies autonomously on a pre-programmed route uh, to the hospital. Uh, it usually arrives in about 30 uh, to 40 minutes or so, depending on how far away the hospital is. We serve a, an area of about 8,000 square 
miles. So uh, we can uh, fly. Our service area is about 8,000 square miles. So our drones are capable of flying 100 miles uh, round trip per each delivery. Uh, so as soon as the plane makes it, or the drone rather, makes it out to the hospital, uh, the bay doors open up, the packaged, uh, the package and the parachute are released. They float gently down uh, to the front steps of the hospital. Um, and then the hospital staff will come out, retrieve the blood, test it very quickly to make sure that uh, we've delivered the correct blood type and that it's safe for transfusion. Uh, and then they would take it straight into the uh, operating room and transfuse the patient. I've heard the founder compare the process to, to like some match between an aircraft carrier and a bouncy castle. So what's a, what does the recovery process look like? Yeah, in, in the first iteration of our system, uh, we, did use, uh, we did use a bouncy castle. Uh, now uh, our system is uh, uh, higher up off the ground so that uh, when the plane comes in and the tail hook, the three centimeter long tail hook, catches the wire, uh, it then uh, hangs down almost like a kind of a a bungee diver (laughs) or a bungee (laughs) jump. It, uh, you know, stops on a dime, swings down, uh, and almost looks like a, uh, like a trophy fish uh, hanging, waiting for somebody to come and recover it. Uh, But it does allow us to do uh, both takeoffs and landings from a very uh, small space compared to say what you might require um, uh, to, uh, you know, fly commercially with, uh, with longer range aircraft with a a landing strip and and things like that. So we're able to use a very, we're able to efficiently use a very, very small plot of land to conduct uh, all of our operations. So as the delivery, it's, it's dropped with a parachute. How do you make sure? I mean, so there's something of a similar problem where, you know, there could be a gust of wind, something blows the delivery off site. How do you make that parachuted item land on the target every time? Yeah, so our, our aircraft are able to sort of dynamically adjust depending on wind and weather conditions. Um, you know, all of the routes uh, that the plane flies are autonomous and pre-programmed, uh, but does it have the ability to make certain amount of decisions on on its own in flight. The aircraft does, that is. And so if, for instance, um, the aircraft determines that, you know, on the approach into the hospital, uh, that the wind conditions uh, from the east are not optimal, it will instead uh, change course and come in from the west. So our system does have the ability uh, to make those kinds of adjustments to ensure that the package gets to where it needs to go uh, you know, safely and effectively. What has the, the kind of failure rate been? Like how often have you had a, you know, a drone because of weather crashed or had delivery fail? What's that looked like? Mm-hmm. Um, so we've um, just sort of back it up a little bit and give you some kind of the macro picture. We have flown uh, over uh, 1 million miles um, so far uh, across three uh, continents uh, and have made uh, more than uh, 26,000 deliveries. Uh, About a third of those have been uh, in emergency situations where someone's life was on the line. Um, But we know that if you're going to build a system like this, uh, it's critical that you bake 
in safety to every part of uh, of the entire system, of the aircraft, of the logistics of fulfillment, you name it. So what we've done is a number of different things. Number one, as I had mentioned before, on the pre-flight process, um, we use computer vision uh, to automate most of the checks. So the plane will not uh, take off. It, it will not allow anyone to launch it until our system registers that it's been fully pre-flighted to detect any kind of uh, anomalies or errors or things that could jeopardize its ability uh, to successfully fly its life-saving mission. Um, At that point, um, we've built, uh, you know, at the point that the plane is in the air and flying, we've built redundant systems uh, into many of the key aspects of uh, of the flight system itself. So the plane has two propellers, uh, two engines. If one fails, the other is strong enough uh, to keep it flying. Uh, we have multiple control surfaces on the plane, uh, so that if you know the control surfaces on one wing uh, fail, uh, the same surfaces on the other wing can take it home. We have backup power systems, backup navigation systems, backup communication systems. If all of those things fail, uh, then we have a built-in uh, parachute landing system. Uh, so, uh, in the event of, uh, you know, for instance, if air traffic control tells us that we uh, we need to ground the aircraft immediately because you know they have a a plane in the sky that's not responding or some other kind of emergency, or if we experience sudden inclement weather, a, a freak storm that comes through that nobody you know just nobody was expecting, uh, we have the ability to you know the aircraft can can autonomously uh, decide uh, to pull its chute, or we can uh, command the aircraft to pull its chute and glide down to the ground and, and gently land, you know, right where it is. Uh, let's let's back up for a second. We're we're in East Africa. It's Rwanda. It's Ghana, Ghana, Tanzania. You know, one of the countries that you're operating in. What are the kind of uh, unique uh, difficulties that that medical delivery faces in those countries versus a place like the United States. Uh, so, as you mentioned, we're, we're operating in a couple of different countries in in uh, in Africa. Uh, we've also uh, announced plans to expand our um, uh, efforts uh, to India and to the Philippines, um, and uh, we've also been doing work. Uh, with the uh, U.S. Department of Defense uh, to help them uh, really uh, you know, rethink and, and revolutionize the way we do uh, battlefield medicine uh, and other critical logistics. Um, and, uh, and we plan to expand to the United States uh, later on this year. Um, so the, you know, there are similar challenges and different challenges, I think, in, in each of these places. Um, you know, in, in many parts of the developing world, uh, you have uh, infrastructure issues, um, which prevent you from, uh, you know, really effectively uh, getting uh, what you need where it needs to be. Uh, you have uh, medical stockout issues where, uh, and this is all over the world. Uh, where you know essentially if you're if you're in a big city um, you know your ability to get access uh, to to the medicine and the care that you need is much much different uh, or becomes much much more difficult rather the further you get outside of a major metropolitan area uh, that's true everywhere I think the kinds of challenges we're seeing in the United States are 
uh, different. In a lot of places, there are access challenges, um, but there are uh, also ways in which uh, you know drone delivery uh, can help change the way we deliver healthcare. Uh, for instance, there are big movements in the United States around pushing care closer to home. Uh, you know, major major uh, healthcare providers are are taking a good hard look at, um, at at a concept that essentially says, you know, it's potentially more cost effective and more care effective to to treat you in your home than it is to admit you into the hospital. You know, if they can give you telemedicine, if they can uh, give you on-demand access to to uh, medicines and 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 the resources that you need, in addition to home health care providers and things like that, some data show that um, you know that that outcomes have improved doing it that way versus you know admitting people into the hospital for long stays. Uh, there are chronic care patients uh, around the country um, who you know are reliant on uh, very regular deliveries of uh, very, very expensive uh, medications, sometimes, you know, many thousands of dollars worth of medications that they have to receive at their home or that they have to go out of their way to find at some specialty pharmacy that's very disruptive to their lives. Like it's hard to have to hold down a, a, a regular job with a regular schedule when you're, uh, when you're you know, building so much of your life around the best way to get access to the medicine you need to stay healthy. Um, so there are ways that, you know, instant uh, drone delivery can help uh, solve those access challenges as well. It strikes me that, you know, medical supplies in terms of like starting with the hard and working towards the easier use case, um, it, it strikes me that Zipline is also doing that with what you're delivering. I mean, uh, blood delivery, medical supplies, those are you know, particularly hard cargo in as much as they have expira- you know, short expiration dates, they need to be refrigerated. I mean, it's not just like ordering Postmates. So maybe you can describe for me some of uh, what the you know founders thinking was, what the inspiration was, was why medical supplies first? Yeah, I mean, blood is among the most delicate products uh, and uh, that that uh, requires, uh, you know, great, great care when delivering. Uh, there's, you know, 20 to 30 different, you know, between uh, blood types, uh, blood products, reagents, you name it. There are multiple different types of products you have to have on hand. And our goal was essentially to do for um, for medicine what Toyota did for auto manufacturing, right? It's just-in-time delivery. Instead of uh, people guesstimating uh, how much, you know, usually at a hospital, you run into two problems. You either don't have what you need or you don't need what you have. You know, the first instance leads to uh, stockouts, lack of access uh, for patients, and in many cases, death. Uh, the other uh, instance, uh, you know, don't need what you have leads to high levels of waste and other kinds of costs in the system. If you live in the developed world, you know, we've we've baked in, uh, you know, in in, in major places, uh, you know, 100% uptime, 100% access in a lot of places by just factoring in the the very very high cost of waste. We just accept uh, that you know we're not going to use all the blood we have, and a lot of it is just going to go is just going to spoil. If you live in a in a developing world country, you you don't have that luxury. Um, so uh, we really wanted to focus on 
a very, very urgent, high need um, medical product uh, that that could immediately help to save lives. Uh, and at the same time, um, allow us to build a robust system uh, that could truly evolve into essentially the, the first logistic system in the planet that could help serve all people equally. Now, the, the program, uh, as I was reading about it, it sounds like, you know, there was some real vision from the president of Rwanda, uh, Paul Kagame, um, signed the contract with you all very early on. Um, and Rwanda has, has a record of being very open to innovation, you know, emerging tech hub in Africa. In your own experience and Sipline's experience with, um, uh, with, with Rwanda and East Africa in general, where, where does that sense of openness and desire for innovation, like what, what explains that this particular moment in Rwanda? Well, um, you know, R- Rwanda has been an extraordinary partner, uh, throughout this process. And, um, you know, I think, uh, that that the results show that I mean they've essentially established the playbook uh, for for every other country in the world that wants to do this kind of work. In fact, the World Economic Forum uh, partnered with Rwanda to develop model regulations uh, that other countries who wanted to get into drone delivery could use to to build their own systems so that they wouldn't have to start from scratch. Um, so it, it's obviously very meaningful to have uh, the commitment from, uh, you know, when the president of the country comes forward and says, we need to do this, um, uh, you know, the, the rest of the, of the government, um, you know, came together and, and, you know, built an incredible partnership with us to make sure that we could, um, you know, bring this system to help serve the Rwandan people. So it's been an honor to work with them. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the Federal Aviation Administration still hasn't approved final rules for non-line-of-sight drone deployment uh, outside of a few pilot projects. They're just too afraid of any downside risk whatsoever and so have been stifling drone development, much of which has gone offshore to places like Rwanda and Switzerland, places with more pro-innovation regulatory authorities. Here is where we can affirm the importance of the stories that we tell. So often, Western science fiction emphasizes the risk and disruption that tech could foment to the exclusion of the potential upsides. And when we fear tech rather than imagining its promise, it acts as a self-fulfilling prophecy. The stories that we tell truly matter. And in some ways, Africa is telling better stories right now than we are. I also asked Justin about how past innovation in infrastructure development in Rwanda and Africa more generally had made it possible for Zipline to roll out its drone tech so easily. Absolutely. I mean, we when I talked about the, the redundant communication systems and navigation systems we use um, uh, on our drone, um, you know, we're using both uh, radio and cellular uh, connection. But uh, you know, as you point out, um, in Rwanda... You know, they, they years ago never took the time to lay down, uh, you know, border to border nationwide phone lines, uh, which created the opportunity for them to, in one foul swoop, uh, do nationwide 3G. Uh, I mean, there, there are places where, you know, if I'm in the, the, the major Western hotel chain, um, I will flip off, you know, in Rwanda, I'll flip off uh, the Wi-Fi on my phone because the nationwide 3G will give me better coverage. 
Um, so it's, it's, uh, you know, pretty, pretty phenomenal. And the, the innovations go beyond that. I mean, you know, I know that this isn't necessarily the topic of the talk, but, uh, you know, from, uh, mobile, mobile banking and payments, uh, to you name it. I mean, they've, Africa has, has really become one of the most innovative places in the world right now, uh, because they have both, uh, the need and, and the capacity uh, to move very fast on 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 a lot of in a lot of different directions, and drone delivery is one of them. So, yeah, Rwanda was first, and and by virtue of that, uh, you know, not only are they showing everybody else what's possible, but um, you know, countries in Africa right now are leading the world in autonomous drone delivery. The 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 that's one of the stories that we love actually, is that some of the biggest, most well known technology companies in the world. Have been trying for years to figure out how to do this, but but you know the most cutting edge roboticists and flight you know autonomous flight engineers and things like that they're not in Seattle, they're not in San Francisco, they work in Africa, uh, so it's, it's it's a very cool story about how to build up uh, you know the workforce of the of the 21st century, but it's also one that we very much want to bring back home. You know, we've developed this technology in the United States. We've worked very, very hard uh, to build a robust system that we think can positively impact people's lives. Um, so we really, really look forward uh, to launching in the United States very soon because we think it could have a very positive impact. Let's hope that we in the West will learn to imitate Africa when it comes to openness to innovation. I'll end by describing some videos I've seen of Zipline's launches. As the drones are literally catapulted into the sky, the fence around the launch site is lined with children of all ages, from toddlers through teenagers. They cheer each successful launch. Those children are getting a vision of the future. Who knows which of them, as a result, will one day be inspired to be part of the next generation of engineers, researchers, and programmers. They face challenges, certainly but they have something that is all too often lost in the fat and happy developed world, a sense of wonder and the willingness to imagine that the future is unlimited. It is they who could make African science fiction into African science fact. That's all for today. Until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.